This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Audio Book Club. I'm Emily Bazelon. I am here in New Haven with one of my favorite writers, Amy Bloom. She is a novelist whose last book is called Where the God of Love Hangs Out. And I am so excited to report that she is working on a new book called In Praise of Folly, which sounds splendid. I can personally vouch for that. So, Amy, thank you so much for joining us. I'm glad to be here. And Hannah Rosen, my beloved colleague and doppelganger, is with us in D.C. Hey, Hannah. Hi. So we are here to talk about a book called The Good Mother by Sue Miller, which is, I think, a period piece. It was published in 1986 to absolutely stirring reviews and a lot of conversation. I remember this book because my mother was really, really obsessed with it and her friends. They talked about it an enormous amount. And even though I was in high school when this book came out, and I don't really think it's like a high school girl kind of book, I read it and was really grabbed by it and remember the whole thing vividly. So we thought we would use this occasion of the book's 25th anniversary to think about what it says about that period of parenting and womanhood, if that's a safe word to use, and how our understanding of all these things may or may not have changed. First of all, if this book is a period piece, it seems to me it's not actually a period piece of the 80s when it was written. It really feels to me like an early to mid-70s book. And I was wondering, Amy, what you think about that. Well, I think it's a safe bet that I was probably more sentient in the 70s and the 80s than the two of you. I had two little kids in the late 80s. And when I was rereading this book, it did strike me as very much about the late 70s, although I don't think that that's necessarily a result of the content. I mean, she's not painting a flower on her face and running off to drop acid and have sex, you know, in a big mud puddle somewhere. It's which not, you were doing in the 70s. I was not doing that in the <laughs> 70s. I, <laughs> I started raising kids when I was 21. Uh-huh. I was not doing that in the 70s. <laughs> but I think that there's something in the tone, actually, in the voice and in the voice of the character, which I think on one hand is really um, brilliantly 
brought forward. She is a whole person. You see who she is. Now, unfortunately for me, she's not somebody I'm crazy about. All right. And we will get to that in a minute. We certainly can. But I think it is more the stuff that comes out in the beginning of the book that it's it's so much about rebellion and independence and leaving the family and... And sexual uh, repression too. Sexual repression, being your own person, the the diminishment of women, all of that stuff is very much front-loaded in the book. Although it is also true, of course, I think one of the things that gives it that 60s, 70s vibe is that uh, the husband has a job. She occasionally teaches piano, having failed to become a brilliant pianist and apparently... It never occurred to her any time after she failed to become a brilliant pianist that it might be a good idea to get a job. Hannah, we're talking about Anna, the protagonist of the novel. Can you lay out a little bit for us some crucial aspects of the plot and the story? Yes. So her name is Anna Dunlap. And when we open the book is in the process of getting a divorce, the early process of getting a divorce to her husband, Brian, who seems like a fairly repressed, almost 1950s character. They have a marriage with no sexual chemistry, but they do have a young young daughter named Molly, who's a toddler at the time that the book opens. So they're getting a divorce and she has the divorce papers in hand. And so you're watching her separate and try both to move forwards and go backwards. So in this moment that she's getting a divorce, she's thinking a lot. And this is the structure of the novel, which moves backwards into her childhood and basically her mother, who's a fairly oppressive character, and her sexual awakening, which was fairly tortured. She was the person who guys knew they could grope more than they could grope other girls. And she was a disappointment to her mother because her mother thought she was going to be a piano prodigy, and then she turned out not to be a piano prodigy. And thus comes the line, which is the most memorable for me in the book, which is, I think, why we don't like Anna Dunlap so much, because she seems so constrained, is the line, if I could not be great, I could be female, which she realizes in her older age is what she thought when she was younger, sort of why she went from disappointing piano prodigy straight to kind of sexual deviant. And on the way, we have this like teenage sex that's horrible teenage sex. It's like this girl sitting there letting boys paw her. Being lovelessly groped, right. Being lovelessly groped. Exactly. Ooh, lovelessly groped. That's That's nice. That's also a nice title. It's so funny because when I've been thinking a lot about the the hookup culture, you know, and as I've been doing a lot of research For your book. For my book. Not not for my, I am not a college freshman just for those of you who don't know and my daughter is not yet a college freshman, but I have been thinking and reading about the hookup culture. And it, you know, reading this, a lot of scenes kind of put me in mind of, you know, sexuality as we currently think and configure it. And the loveless groping scenes made me think the hookup culture was great. You know, at least you could you can say something now or you can say this sucks or you can put it on your blog or something. You don't just sort of sit in the dark corners with the teenage And someone will cue into the idea that girls have orgasms too. Exactly. Somewhere along the way. Yes. You know, to me, I just want to go back to the time question for a minute. I feel like the novel actually skips the 80s. That's what's funny to me about it. It goes from a novel sort of in the 60s and 70s in that constricted female way, you know, over to the legalistic 90s, you know, where you're suddenly drawn into the kind of language of harassment and victimization and court cases and kind of skips everything in between. So, you know, it's as if there was no sexual revolution or liberation or women's lib. We get a tiny, tiny taste of it from her boyfriend, Leo, but that's about it. Huh. That's interesting. I don't know if 
I agree with that. I felt like the legal framework for the book, which comes in the second half when Anna gets into this devastating custody battle with her ex-husband over her very, very cherished daughter, Molly, who is three or four at the time. That legal framework felt earlier to me because there's this mention of Goldstein, Solnit, and Freud, which is this really famous text about the best interests of the child that drove custody law in the United States for like 25 years, really. And this whole idea that there's one psychological parent or at least continually present parent who, whichever parent that is, that that person should have priority. But anyway, that's just my We're moving ahead lawyer of take yes. on it. Yes. Yeah. So I want to say one more thing about Anna's growing up or play around with this a little, which is I think it matters that she comes from this big, mainstream, very waspy family. There's this sense of old money, especially on her grandmother's side. And new money from her grandfather, but new money that acts like old money. And so this family has a camp in Maine, I think, mm-hmm. somewhere. It doesn't even matter. Like some New England Yankee state. And it's not a fancy place, but it's a place where the whole extended family gets together. And there's this tribal sense of power that comes from this place and yet it's not especially loving. The grandfather is a very judgmental patriarch, and Anna has a younger aunt, an aunt who's younger than Anna's mother, who rebels and is punished for it soundly. And so Anna really, part of her pushing away of her repressive mother is also a pushing away of this whole kind of establishment presence that her family stands for. The beginning of the book is quite long before the action really gets started. Is is all of that justified? Do we get enough from it? First of all, it's one of the one of the hallmarks of Sue Miller's work is very often the character looking back, you know, lying down, looking over one shoulder. I mean, however you think of it, there is often a review of significant chunks of the past. And I think part of the purpose of this is not only to tell us where she comes from, but also how she sees where she comes from, which is, it seems to me, crucial. And there are moments that the character says, on the other hand, maybe I really did it for this. For example, when she has to write letters to everybody in the family to tell them about this, the shame of her divorce, which she does at her mother's request, There's a very long riff on how she pulled away from the family because she couldn't stand all the competitiveness. And then she says, on the other hand, I might have pulled away also because I had nothing to to show for it. I had produced Molly and I had a few successes in my husband's career. And that Um, was it. I had nothing to say in these letters. And then there's sort of a further explanation and a further looking at her quest for independence, which is very much the style of the character all along, which is to sense herself taking a strong stand, you know, planting her little feminist flag somewhere and then going, well, on the other hand, maybe it really wasn't about that at all. There's Mm -hmm. a moment where her grandfather, who does come across as a complete dick, and the character keeps referring to him as condescending, which seems to me a little unnecessary since, you know, he is... You can see it. (laughs) you, You can see it here. You can actually smell it off the page. But there's no subtlety in his character, unlike with the grandmother, whom she has adored. But he offers to pay for a babysitter so she can have her daughter at home and she doesn't have to schlep the kid to daycare, which Anna refuses in this sort of very 
you know, high-handed principled voice, although it's not at all clear to me what principle is being upheld, except the principle that I can afford daycare, so that's what I'm going to pay. Well, I was reminded, though, of daycare and its status, which is sort of blurred at this point, because I think lots of upper-middle-class people use daycare. But when I was growing up, my mother would never have put us in daycare, and I think part of that was just that there wasn't very much full-time daycare, but she definitely looked down on it. And my mother worked full-time. We totally had a babysitter. It's not that she was a stay-at-home mm-hmm. mom, but she had this notion that like daycare was low rent and your kids weren't going to be that well taken I care of. I couldn't read the daycare exactly. I thought that was you know so period-specific. I couldn't tell if that was a matter of independence for her or it was a matter of social class. Like you know, people of a certain social class didn't put their kids in daycare and you would expose the child to dangerous things. Like at some point, you know, a kid in Molly's class says some curse words like shit or something like that and then she has right, to and that's process like with Molly. Yeah. So whether daycare was something that sort of dropped you down a class. I want to ask you guys a couple of questions before we move over from the history period. One is what you guys thought of Babe. She's the mother's youngest sister. And she's a sort of very old fashioned storyline, you know, sort of sex equals death kind of storyline, you know, where she, yeah, she she's the, <laughs> to put it crudely, I mean, she's the person who, um, you know, did you find that sort of crude? I'm, I'm speaking as a as a, like a, a dro- like a novelistic method here to sort of drop Babe in as the dangerous future of liberated sex, which was supposed to tell us that such a thing was possible. You know that the outside reaches of having sex in exactly the way you want it was going to lead to disaster because she does fall off a boat. She gets pregnant and she's not even allowed to have a baby and live. she has the babies adopted away. I mean, yeah, and then she it's dies. Not actually, even an abortion. Yeah, and then she dies. She falls off a boat and dies. And there's some. Right, that she drinks. She doesn't fall off a boat. She chooses to swim to the shore right, and drowns. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. And the strong implication is that rather than spend another bloody minute with her extremely annoying Uncle Ori, <laughs> she jumps out of the boat. And you can hardly blame her. Right. <laughs> but I think that Susan Miller is a smart writer. Mm-hmm. I really do. I don't think the message that she is sending to the reader is, hi-ho, girls, sex equals death. I think that this is yet another piece so you can see the framework now writ very large and colorful around Anna. Mm -hmm. This is what she was raised with. This is what she saw. And you see how her wish not to have babe's life. And I also want to just say from the writerly point of view, there is a beautiful scene in which babe says to Anna, would you like to see it? Do you want to see my tummy? And she lifts up her shirt, and there's this kind of gorgeous, lush, curvy body. And so it's a beautiful description of it. Like a blueberry. There was a blueberry in there somewhere. And this is her pregnancy. Yeah, it's her pregnancy. Her pregnancy and her naked body, and it reminds... Yes, very much like a fruit. Didn't you think of Botticelli and Venus on the shore? Because they're on the beach. Yeah, and it's it's lovely. And it also is not reminiscent. It it, whatever forecasts a lot of her adoration of Leo Mm -hmm. and his physicality. But I think all of this is in the service of saying, these are the conflicts that Anna experiences. I don't want to be babe. I do want to be sensual. I I want to believe that I can have this full three-dimensional sexual life and that I will not be punished for it. Now, of course, there is the issue in the novel of the 
that's not true. Apparently, you will be punished for it for the rest of your life. Right. Right. I, right. I think the babe is light and dark, and she gives Anna a reason to escape the constraining parts of her family, and in some ways is more about opening up possibilities than she is about closing them off. Mm-hmm. But then in the end, Amy's right. This is a novel in which, like, there is there is punishment. There is punishment. punishment. And my second question before we move on from the history is, are we to understand that this is period specific or or is Anna's family supposed to give us the broader context for how the family's response to divorce, in other words, seemed extreme to me for 1986. You know, it seemed to me that the shame around the divorce, the casual assumption that she was going to live, you know, the new limitations of her life, the idea that she was supposed to, you know, write letters of basically shame and apology to the entire family seemed dated. And, And is it not? I mean, maybe there was this sort of waspish establishment that would have upheld such things even as late as 1986. Because as I said, uh, I mean, I, I being a being a young teenager, then, uh, you know, divorce was the background of my childhood. I mean, everyone's parents were getting divorced. And I'm just wondering if there was shame. I think the intention is to be specific to this family, mm-hmm. not to suggest that everybody in the United States was still horrified mm-hmm. by divorce. Mm-hmm. You know, the writing seems very sort of odd and punitive. On the other hand, you have to remember they didn't have email. Right, right. And so um, it seems dated because there was a, you know, dramatic shift in the way people communicated. Right, and it the grandfather isn't texting. And it hasn't taken place yet. I would be happy to live in a world in which grandfathers actually never texted. But the um, No, but look, she could I, write I, it on understand. her blog and send the link to her grandfather. <laughs> exactly. That's right. Guess day. what? But Guess don't what, you think guys? also there's there can be even still now an attitude about divorce, which is that it's fine for other people, but not fine yes, for us. Yes, yes. And also I, I like this way that. of understanding the kind of building the horizons around Anna, you know, the background in which she was raised, all the different sense of possibility and limitation. So that's what the first half of the novel before the action begins, you know. By the way, Anna mentions that several of her other cousins have gotten divorced, which, I, again, I think is the writer's way of signaling this is not the 19th century. Right. Other people in the family have gotten divorced, too. But it's, again, what it means for her in her relationship with this group of people. Right. And also her own sense, which as we move out of the setting of being cast adrift, which she clearly is. I think it also matters, and this is a different take on her divorce. For her, it's a very bloodless divorce. I mean, this is just a marriage that was kind of never meant to be. From her point of view. And the devastating thing she says to her husband, Brian, as they're breaking up is, oh, our sex was always terrible. And that... Never a good thing to say. (laughs) That may indeed come back to haunt her. But it, I think... It's important to understanding she does not have any sense that, you know, she's the woman who's lost something in this divorce. She wants her freedom and independence. And that also seemed kind of right for the 1980s to me. That's a very good point that it allows her to be more completely set adrift. And that feels a little more dangerous than if she had Mm -hmm. had a family that was, you know, supportive and the divorces were around. Her new life would have taken a different course, you know, wouldn't have been this completely blank slate that then needed to be filled in by a person, a new set of attitudes that, you know, seem a little dangerous. The reason this novel is not Anna Karenina, for example, is that what you are struck by, what I am struck by as a reader, not as a writer, as a reader, is the relentless, sad, self-deceiving, faintly stupid quality of Anna Dunlap. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And... I don't fault the writer for it. In other words, I don't feel like, oh, she was trying to do something else, but she ended up doing this. 
I think that is the character. You know, so you have to set it up that she is uh, kind of flippering around in the pond, and the first log she comes to is Leo. At the laundromat. At the laundromat. Leo is the beautiful artist who Anna meets at the laundromat. He tries to pick her up, and she's not interested at first. She thinks that it's all a big cliche. She must be very beautiful. We don't quite exactly see that from her point of view, but it seems like she's very attractive. But then a month or so later, she decides to give him a call. She's lonely, and his memory has kind of lingered with her. And they start seeing each other, and she has this kind of immediate, intense, revelatory sexual awakening, which then drives the action for the rest of the novel. And then we have to wonder about the implications for her relationship with Molly. So, Amy, did you feel like you didn't like Anna throughout all of the novel, or was there a moment where you lost faith in her? Well, I didn't have a lot of faith in her from the beginning because I didn't feel that I was encouraged to have a lot of faith in her. You know, she was pushed around by all these repressive people. She did not rebel against her family by saying, you know, the hell with you, I'm going to become a neurosurgeon. She sort of says to herself, well, wow, 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 I guess I'll marry this perfectly reasonable guy and I have this adorable child. I love a lot of the moments when she describes Molly. Now, this is, of course, Sue Miller's skill, but a lot of her observations seem to me to be very much the intelligent observations of a very fond mother who is also aware that it is not the be-all and end-all to actually be a mother, that other things enter into it. Oh, do you think that's really clear in the book? I'm not sure I think that's clear. The cruelty in this novel for me was not so much that Anna was so dim and hard to relate to. It was just that any space Anna tried to open up for herself was immediately quashed and punished, you know, either by Leo or by the author. I mean, I, I allow people a slow awakening, right? We're not all revolutionaries. And so she's allowed to have her slow <laughs> sexual slash, you know, work awakening. And yet it, she really gets no space to breathe in this novel. Now, Hannah, how did she stack up against like various more recent you know, yummy mummy or stay at home or, sorry, Amy, or tormented mother figures. I mean, we've talked about this in the past that there's this now trope of women who are kind of these frustrated mothers who never quite get it together to have their own independent professional or really kind of emotional lives. Well, see, that's why I have more sympathy for Anna, because I felt Uh that choices were fairly new to her, you know, that Leo, you know, Leo was oppressing her with his revolution, like, what's wrong with you that you don't have fulfilling work? You know, what's your problem? And that, you know, that's a fairly new idea for her. You know, she's sort of testing out. She's she's young, right? I mean, we assume she's in her early 30s, right? And so Mm -hmm. she's testing out this idea like, well, I'm not really quite a mother, you know, and this job I have feeding rats at the laboratory. You know, it's kind of just a job. And I sort of like the professor who's doing it. And maybe I can be a pretty good piano teacher. Like, I, I don't I, that seems like she's she's building for herself a life in a nice, slow way that's, you know, doesn't have to be like Leo's. I'm an artist. I, you know, throw my paintings in a in a van and head off to New York. Like there's all sorts of ways in which we build our independence. And hers seemed to me as respectable as anybody's if it hadn't been squashed by this tragedy. So you believed in her limitations. And it seems like Amy was more frustrated by them. Is that fair? Well, I mean, I believe in them. You know, it's a big world. There are lots of women like Anna. It's mm-hmm. not that I think this is a false creation or right. simply a novelistic turn. But you not know. one you want to have coffee with. <laughs> not if I can help it. She did have that one cool friend, though, who was interested in Ursula? her. Yeah, Ursula? Yeah, Ursula. Yes, who helps her out and whom by the end of the novel she barely sees or speaks to. Right. 
So it's not that I think she is unrealistic or unusually terrible. And I do feel that she has these, you know, real moments of observation and insight. I mean, there's a great scene early on where she's playing with Molly and they're at a diner and she observes that the uh, attractive young couple who have been sort of flirting with Molly have now lost interest in her, but nobody has told Molly that and she's Molly's no longer still necessary. Popping up across and, the you know, it's, it's great observed detail yes. and especially that it comes from Anna. And I, I know that she gets squashed by life's events, and it, this is not to say it doesn't happen, only that she is so steadily and readily squashed makes it harder for me to root for her. You know, I hope for the best, but there is a point where I give up hoping for the best because she so consistently sort of runs into a, a door that she seems not to have noticed before, you know, runs into a wall. See, what gave me hope was her self-awareness. So that that mm-hmm. phrase that I came up with, if I could not be great, I could be female. I mean, she, in, right. in, in kind of analyzing her past, she's realizing things about Babe, about her family, about where these limitations come from, about what this piano prodigy thing, you know, all meant and what her mother's role is in squashing Absolutely. her. And so you just feel like you give her till 45 and she would have been okay to have coffee with. Well, that's possible, although it does make you really sorry that she had a child before she was 45 because that kid, of course, is going to have to be in therapy for 20 years. And part of what it made me think of, in fact, when you just said that, is that she, you know, before I was a writer, I was a psychotherapist and she reminds me of so many women I had treated. I was saying more about that. Oh, well, you know, they've got tons of insight and good observations and real understanding of certain things about themselves and their patterns. And yet they cannot get out of their own way because there is a difference between um, awareness and sort of a real integrated understanding where you have gotten a terrible shock to your system, which is the insight, you know, something that really turns you upside down. It doesn't happen that often. You usually get the kinds of insights that Anna has. She observes this. She understands that. She's aware of that. She can look back at her adolescence, but she cannot stop herself from doing the same thing over and over and over again. That squashed me right there because you're right. That is, I mean, the, no, <laughs> well, seriously, that was, that was your intention. Yeah. Not no, I mean, easily the, accomplished, the, may I add. The difference between insight and acting on insight is huge. I mean, there's a universe in there. And it is true that Anna, who, who seems smart, and, you know, you, you watch her watch her daughter and you think, oh, this is a smart mother, right? This is a mother you want to have a conversation. She's very insightful about her daughter and very interesting. She's insightful about the psychiatrist. She's sort of insightful about the court case. You know, there's all sorts of ways in which she is, you know, sensible and smart and yet keeps behaving in the same pattern. She needs cognitive behavioral therapy is what she needs. All right. And now this diminished, stuck person runs into what truly is a a shock to the system, this kind of devastating event in the second half of the novel. Do you want to describe what happens, Hannah, briefly? Uh, So Molly at this point has been going back and forth visiting her father, with whom she has a pretty good relationship and his father although is fairly distant fairly distant fairness, he works right. he's got this what we are led to believe isn't you know sort of repressed waspy female version of himself in fact her name is brenda and so right. you know anna likes brenda to say brian new brenda wife. new wife you know they're sort of the same person who is pregnant i think at the time anyway i don't remember if she's pregnant it's not relevant so anna goes to visit them and then one day anna does not come home at the appointed time molly, molly. Oh, sorry molly. molly doesn't the child molly doesn't come home at the appointed time instead 
Anna, the mother, gets a phone call from her ex-husband saying, you know, she's not coming back to you because something terrible has happened. I'm taking her away from you. I've called a lawyer. And she doesn't really know what's going on, except that she knows it has something to do with Leo, her boyfriend, and some inappropriate touching. And before this, there's been this kind of brief idyllic period in the novel in which Leo is spending a lot of nights and they're, you know, being naked together around Molly. And it's all sort of very free flowing as if there are no boundaries among the three of them. And Leo seems like he's great with Molly. She's very fond of him. And Anna's kind of wooed into this sense of false security about this very, it seemed to me, 70s kind of creation in her own home. Yeah, it seems like it could be a perfect, perfect situation. You know, you've got sort of freedom. I'm sorry, doesn't she have sex with Leo in the bed while Molly's sleeping next to them? Well, only kind of. Not really. That doesn't really happen? Well, it seems to me like, so in fact, like, so Molly is can't sleep one night, gets into bed with them, is on Anna's side sleeping, and Leo is like sort of inside of Anna. But it's not supposed to be like, you know, humping intercourse and this i'm sorry to be so graphic but this is actually matters because after brian gets this custody battle going anna makes the grave error of telling the guardian ad litem who's interviewing her about this moment which no one could have otherwise known about and to me this is like the incredible terrible mistake that she makes right please see my earlier remarks about her lack of (laughs) self-understanding she is a blurter she is a blurter from the first page to the last she cannot keep her mouth shut because she always wants to be the good child it's not about the good mother she is always the good child and she's always shooting herself in the foot because she can't shut up in her wish to be approved of and liked and forthcoming. Forthcoming? You know what? You don't need to be in a courtroom in a custody case. Forthcoming. Right. Right. And actually, the the interactions with the psychiatrist bring that up painfully, sort of her just unbelievable strong sense that there's something she should be saying in that moment or has to be saying or since she's going to do something wrong, which is at some level natural, you know, when when, when so much is at stake. But in another level, it says a lot about her and, and, you know, where she sees herself in relation to authority figures in the world. And we should explain that you were alluding to this earlier, Hannah, but the sexual incident or whatever, the naked incident that gets the whole thing going is not the three of them in the bed together. It's that Leo took a shower when he was alone in the apartment with Molly and got out of the shower and Molly, out of some sort of innocent three-year-old curiosity, asked to touch his penis and he made another grave error in saying yes, which is not... And then his penis made a grave error, which closes it, of sort of getting a tiny little erection and then sort of it all shut down after that. Right, and he had the sense to walk away, but Molly was confused by this and and also blurts, as three-year-olds will, (laughs) to her father about what's happened. Now... Is this a real incident of sexual abuse? Is there anything to be really worried about here? Or is this just a big misunderstanding that if allowed to naturally pass, Molly would have forgotten about and gone Wait, are you that. actually asking that question? Yes, I'm asking. No, it's not an incident of sexual abuse. I mean, are we okay. supposed to think it is? I mean, I'm a little confused around this because <laughs> <laughs> there's that one line in my passion for Leo, I forgot Molly. You know, this is one of the insights that are, that are now dim Anna. <laughs> We all understand her to be dim. Is having not dim. She just doesn't act. <laughs> well, okay. So she says, in my passion for Leo, I forgot Molly. And this was one sentence where I wasn't sure 
who was calling sin on that? Like if if that was okay, if we were supposed to say, yes, it's true, Anna, you did forget Molly, or if we were just supposed to say, look, that's perfectly natural. You're having the first love affair of your life. Of course you forgot about your toddler daughter for a second. You know, it doesn't mean you have to be confined to hell and lose her forever, you know? I wasn't sure how we were supposed to feel about that. Are we supposed to feel like I am, like it's absolutely ridiculous what happened and a total crime what happened to Anna and that she lost her daughter? Or It's not that simple. Well, it is unfair and ridiculous and a crime what happens to her. On the other hand, it's as as I keep going back, it <laughs> seems to me that she is not complicit in her own fate because she abandoned her child by the side of the road while she was shagging Leo, which isn't what happens, but that she never has the common sense to do what is necessary to protect her relationship with her child. And that's the way in which, to me, in fact, she is a bad mother. Which is no, what? Not a bad what does she do other than make that one mistake about blurting out the fact of the three of them in bed together? What else do you hold her responsible for? Well, I'm not a big fan of ditherers. Again, this is not, you know, this is not like a literary crime. I just don't, I don't care for dithering. Right, right. Well, the blurting is a big thing. She doesn't take advantage of the meetings with the psychiatrist. Again, this is just because this is her personality. Although the psychiatrist sides with her. She loses despite his support, right? Right. God bless him. You know, she needed somebody like that parental, paternal manner. But she, smart as she is, never takes it upon herself to try to work any of this to protect her relationship with Molly. Right. She's oddly passive in this part of the novel. You know, she's hit on the head with a cricket bat and she's basically down for the count. And that's the last quarter of the novel. You know what I must have had in mind in reading the last quarter of the novel, the uh, the Janet Malcolm story about the Bukharan Iphigenia. woman, Iphigenia, yeah. who lost her, which I think you reviewed the book, right, Emily? Yeah, yeah, Yes. Yeah, okay, yeah. so it was yeah. that that I had in mind, and <laughs> just this Janet Malcolmish kind of notion of the individual being crushed by some, you know, kind of institution that was committed to a certain kind of narrative, um, like passivity before a court case. I guess you what we wanted a scene of her screaming or fighting or kidnapping. I wanted her to insist on working it out with her husband. She tries. She calls him a few times and then she just kind of drops it. And to me, her loss of Molly, which is how the book begins to end with that, is a totally devastating, terrifying crime. And that's what I remember about this book from my own childhood was the sense that This good mother, and this is the title of the book, could make one mistake. Essentially, this one slip up is enough that then you could lose your child. And now reading this book as a mother, I had nightmares about it a couple of weeks ago. I mean, I just that idea is really terrifying to me. It doesn't really relate to my own life. I don't think that now an incident like this could get you your loss of custody, but maybe it still could. I mean, I asked that question about whether this moment of touching Leo's penis was sexual abuse, because I think we've become so scared of real sexual abuse in our society that we do have this kind of overreaction sometime to things that really don't count. Right. Oh, absolutely. You could see what happened in two ways. You know, there's sort of the patriarchy as represented by her father, by the voice of Brian, which she seems unable to argue with or push back against. Like Brian says something, even though she doesn't really respect him that much, he does have a sort of voice of God quality. Like Brian says something, it is thus fact, you know? So you've got that, the courtroom, the opposing psychiatrist, that sort of conservative judge. You've got this sort of vast patriarchy bearing down on this single mother who now doesn't even have Leo 
on her side. And so we are supposed to feel sorry for her and sort of in sisterly alliance with her. And then you've got another view, which is that her passivity brings this on. You know, her passivity gives us the makes these voices larger than they really need to be. And all she needs to do is speak up, fight hard, borrow more money, you know, whatever she can do, scrape claw and that she doesn't do. Like the book ends on a fairly passive scene of Molly you know, bringing her to Brian and Brenda's house, coming to hug her, and then turning away and saying, come see my new life. And this turns out to be the vision that she remembers as she's getting older and Molly's getting older of Molly, although reluctantly, ushering Anna into what is now her established new life. So Anna's once again an outsider to an existing waspish, you know, hidebound situation just as she was when she was And I found myself furious with this ending. I mean, I have more sympathy for Anna, Amy, than you do, but I was angry with her for accepting this role, although I could also see that she had decided it was the best thing for Molly Mm -hmm. and that maybe she was right. So we're meant to understand that Molly is ripped apart by the separation from her mother, that it is devastating to her as a three- and four-year-old, but that as she gets older, she recovers, and that it's really Anna who doesn't recover. And there's a Mm -hmm. passage toward the end of the book that I just kept coming back to in my head. She's really, Anna is grappling with what she's lost, and she says, I'd come to the end, I would go nowhere. I had nowhere to go. There was no way to retrieve my life with Molly. Whatever it was we were to have, it would be utterly different from what we'd had before. And I didn't know if I had the strength to shape it. But this brings us back to Amy's point. I mean, has Anna changed at all? Is she the same Anna she was before she had all these great insights about her childhood and what it meant? I mean, is she right back there kind of in the room at her father's knee? Like, has she changed? I think she is, but it's really scary and upsetting. And I'm, I think the reason the novel kind of holds this power over me is that by the end of the book, I don't know what choice she really has. Once she, you know, she does, she she fights. It's not like a scrape and claw kind of fighting, but she fights to get Molly back and she loses. And right. then, you know, you kind of want her to kidnap the kid and go to Argentina. But I don't know, maybe that's, maybe that would be actually a terrible thing for her to do. And I don't know what other choice she really has at the end, even though I was enraged that she was, she becomes like basically an appendage to Brian and Brenda's new life. They move to a new city. She has to move so she can see Molly once or twice a week. And it's really sad. Well, it's like that thought you have, you know, why isn't the wife screaming at the gravesite of her? You know, you watch a funeral and mm-hmm. you're like, how can they just all stand there calmly as the worst thing that's ever happened has just happened to them? Well, people don't scream at funerals. It's just not what people do. And, you know, maybe there are these large kind of institutions and orderly things that take hold, such as court cases and funeral processions, and we all don't scream. I don't know. Although this isn't just the funeral procession. It's like the whole life that unfolds after right. where it, you it, do scream. I do feel sympathetic, of course, to Anna and this is a terrible thing that happens and very unfair, and she loses custody of her child. But since we stay with her past the court case, and we stay with her with this terrible, grievous loss, and I certainly believe that she would be grief-stricken for life. It's also true that, again, because she is who she has been described as being, her behavior is very consistent, I'm not suggesting she should kidnap the kid and go to Argentina. That would be so outside the nature of this character as to turn it into a comic book. But she also doesn't have the capacity, apparently, nor does she develop the capacity to continue to put all of her or a significant portion of her energy either into her own life or into Molly's life. 
Right. You know, the energy of her life just goes down the drain. Right. And right. she neither moves forward. You know, it's not common, but, you know, we have all seen the non-custodial parent who makes a tremendous effort to be deeply woven into their kid's life in a very positive way. That's not the book that Sue Miller was writing. Right. This is a book about a woman who was crushed and shaped in the beginning and crushed and shaped at the end. Well, and in some ways she accepts her punishment as due, right? And then there's this line at the end, which I think is hard to swallow. She talks about how truncated and small her life with Molly has become. And she says, I take a certain pride in how well I've done this and thinking that perhaps I'm suited to it in some way as other more passionate people might not be. And that's really like the letting go right. of the last shred of hope that right. she's going to turn into this more full-blown, more feminist character. And it's right? a horrible message, right? Because all the men were right. right about her. You know, Leo was right about her. They were all right about her. Now, what do we make of the fact that she also gives up Leo? Is that a necessary or is that a self-flagellating step that she takes? Well, again, if she were a different person, she might have overtly given up Leo and gone on seeing him if that made her happy. On the other hand, I certainly do understand that Leo as the cause of her losing custody of her child, you know, again, if she were a different person, she might have gone after him with a bread knife. Right. But as right. it is, she withdraws and prefers not to be sexually engaged with him, which seems to me a very mild response <laughs> to, hey, Mr. Life and Flowers, you have caused me to lose custody of my child. Right. The only thing that actually mattered to me. Right, right. So the fact that she loses interest in the affair strikes me as reasonable. <laughs> I want to know if you guys would recommend this book. Do you feel like it's transcended its moment of publication? enough to warrant the glowing reviews that it got? Does it still speak to us? Or is it a book that you can leave on the shelf? Hannah, what do you think? I would recommend this book. I don't know if it you know, speaks to us or says something about the modern age of parenting, but I would certainly recommend it to a parent or to a mother. I think it's still pretty wrenching. And you know, it's interesting to contemplate her and her limitedness and how much we've changed. I felt like I was reading like not mommy porn exactly, but like mommy horror story. Yes, it doesn't <laughs> impact the same way it would have in the 80s. That's the last thing to say about it. It, it Yeah, it's a little mommy horror. It's like flowers in the attic. You know, it strikes you yes. in that place. <laughs> like it's, it's not that bad, but you know what I mean. I think like, that's why it was waking me up in the middle of the night. Actually, right. I think for me, it sort of was still that bad. And maybe we don't exactly read enough why. fiction like this, you know, so so it's like got that horror story. Right, it's, it's a center. little pulpy. Yes, it's pulpy. It's pulpy, exactly. Or at least it strikes us as pulpy. Amy, what do you think? I'm just still thinking about mommies in the attic, which is how <laughs> I now think about the genre. <laughs> to me, as a character study, it's very strong. I am not as crazy about it as a novel. You know, I think the portrait of her is very true and very compelling and, you know, very sad, uh, which is the way a lot of people's lives are. But I'm not captivated by Leo, I'm not horrified by Brian, and I'm not surprised by anything that happens in the courtroom. Again, because, you know, I feel that part of Anna's role in her own life is to consistently shoot herself in the foot. It's very funny. I, I didn't think of recommending it to women or to men, but I think if I were going to recommend it to a particular gender, I would probably hand it to a man who was the father of a young child so that he might have his nightmares, let him have his thoughts mm -hmm. about what might be going through the minds of certain women with young children. I think you could recommend it to anybody as a very, very strong character study and maybe warn them that some pieces of the structure of the novel 
seemed more like a period piece and mm-hmm. less compelling to us now. Thank you all very much for listening. We haven't picked our next book for the next book club yet, but we will, and we'll make sure to announce that on Slate. Amy, thank you so much for coming this morning. My pleasure. And Hannah, it's a pleasure as always. Absolutely. And thank you so much to our producer, Abdullah Rufus, and to Andy Bowers, who is the producer of Slate Podcasts.